Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In Georgia, there is a legend about Tamar that is still held in the hearts of many Georgians of a romantic and wistful nature. They say that their great queen of the 12th century is not gone. She is waiting. Alone in a cave high in the Caucasian mountains, she lies in a golden coffin in eternal slumber. There she has rested for nearly 1,000 years. What she is waiting for isn't clear. Will she rise at times of great peril or of glory? Will she come to save her people or join in their triumph? Who knows? But what they are certain of is that when their great queen, their perfect ruler of the Golden Age, returns, it will be a time of happiness, joy and hope for this proud yet beleaguered nation. Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.7, Tamara of Georgia, the Lioness of the Caucasus. Now, you may have noticed that this has arrived somewhat later than advertised, and no, I haven't passed on the timetabling of this episode to the Nevada vote-counting people. I was sick. It wasn't COVID, it was your common or garden migraine. But now I'm better, so let's make up for lost time. Last episode, we introduced Tamara of Georgia and saw how she became their first queen, or, to put it more accurately, its first female king. After coming to the throne, her nobles tried to walk all over her and limit her power. They settled her with a loutish husband and tried to govern on their own. Tamar, however, got the better of them, ditching first hubby Yuri and marrying instead David Slusland, a man who understood her better. She defeated a noble rebellion but treated her opponents with mercy. Now, with her position at home secure, it was time to make her mark on history. But before we see how she did that, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you would like to support the show, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. 
To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Tamar may have secured her position on the throne, but in power politics, all things are fleeting. She had enough support for the moment, but she would have to work hard to keep it. As a ruling queen, she was creating history, marching into uncharted territory. As we saw last time, she was determined not to rule in the repressive and violent manner that her father had chosen. Rebels against his regime were violently punished, and all dissent quickly squashed. This had worked for him, in a sense, but such actions have the tendency to merely push opposition underground, rather than destroy it completely. Tamar's approach, of pardoning most of her opponents, and at worst exiling them away from the kingdom, as she had done with her first husband, seemed to be working, and she also had a far more balanced council of advisers than her father, with a wider spectrum of views represented. But her real genius move was in keeping her fighting men distracted. Remember that in those days, to be a powerful noble was to be a soldier. They and their ancestors had won their positions due to success on the battlefield, and they were always itching for a fight. Throughout the course of human history, rulers have tried a number of tactics to keep their nobility in check. Louis XIV of France, for example, instituted permanent court attendance at Versailles. But Tamar took a more traditional approach. War, and lots of it. As I said before, Georgia was surrounded by enemies. And her allies in the region were in decline. Instead of taking a defensive approach, Tamar liked to go on the offensive against her local rivals, thus keeping her sword nobility busy fighting the enemy rather than plotting at home. After all, the devil frequently finds conspiratorial work for idle hands. But while this approach was a natural one for male monarchs to take, it presents a problem for ruling queens. As a woman, she could not command armies in the field, and so would have to delegate that authority to a man. If that general was to be successful, the credit for the army's success would probably go to him, not to her. His authority and popularity would rise, while hers would diminish. And such situations rarely end well. That had almost happened with her first husband, and she was determined not to let it happen again. She took a two-pronged approach to solving this problem. The first was the Queen General model, where she would march with the army, sharing in their hardships, and showing calculated displays of valour and inspiration at opportune times. It was common in Georgia for consorts to accompany the army part of the way on campaigning, but Tamar took this a step further, marching with the troops on foot all the way to the battlefield. In doing so, she turned the idea of the weak woman to her advantage, as in trudging along with the men and enduring everything that the elements could throw at her, she was giving both an example to them and also something to protect. If she could keep going, then so must they. 
and in the heat of the battle, they were fighting for someone whom they knew and with whom they had shared experiences. That is not to say that she wasn't also involved in strategy and command. She involved herself in every aspect of the planning and execution of military campaigns, and is frequently mentioned as having made inspirational speeches to urge her men forward. Alongside this, she also took another approach that I will call the divine figurehead, where she would inspire from on high like the Greek goddess Athena. She used propaganda to portray herself as an exalted personification of the nation. She would, in essence, become Georgia and be the very thing that her soldiers were fighting for. She would become more than just a woman then, she would be an idea. Georgia at the time was surrounded on three sides by Muslim principalities. To the west was the powerful Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. The south was dominated by the Artukid Sultanate, and to the east lay the Shavan Shah. On top of that, Armenia, which also lay on its borders, was a no-man's land, littered with advancing and retreating Christian and Muslim armies. Further afield, the great Kurdish general Saladin had conquered a vast empire in North Africa and the Holy Land, almost wiping the Crusader states off the map, including taking the city of Jerusalem despite the heroic efforts of Orlando Bloom. This meant that George's Christian allies were not in a position to offer aid, meaning that they were, more or less, on their own. While Tamar was securing her position in the early years of her reign, the border principalities launched ceaseless raids on Georgian land, taking off booty and slaves, but more often than not, they were repulsed. But now that she was safely ensconced on the throne, she would move off the defensive and planned a counter-attack. She first ordered her armies on the offensive against the Seljuk Turks, led by her husband, taking cities and ravaging the land. Their main targets were the horses and the lands upon which they grazed. The Seljuk armies depended on their mobile cavalry to win battles, and so by taking away the horses, she was depriving the enemy of their greatest weapon. Marrying small-scale raids and attacks with a slow, steady march on the offensive, she managed to sow confusion amongst her enemies while keeping her own forces intact. She decided to celebrate the birth of her son Georgi in 1192 by launching her first major foreign campaign. Led again by her husband David Soslan, her armies invaded Azerbaijan, capturing the city of Bardavi, and also went west, ravaging the land as they went. These moves frightened Tamar's neighbours so much that they appealed to the caliph in Baghdad, a kind of Islamic regional warrior pope, who preached a jihad against Tamar. The Azerbaijanis led the Islamic coalition that resulted, but they found Georgia a very hard nut to crack. Tamar's strategy of lightning raids and harrying attacks meant that the various armies of the jihadi coalition could never come together and coordinate. Indeed, their only real success was not actually against Tamar, but her ally Shervan and its leader Akistan. After being defeated and losing his capital, Akistan appealed to Tamar for help. She dispatched her husband and 30,000 men, who retook Shervan and defeated the jihadi coalition army. This war dragged on for another eight years, but saw only Georgian advances and successes with her armies conquering a great deal of territory in Azerbaijan. 
This expansion of territory brought Georgia closer to the lucrative Silk Road, tolls and markets along which were lucrative cash cows for Seljuks. One of the Seljuks' most powerful rulers was Suleiman II, the Sultan of Rum, who you may remember from last time as the guy who tried to chat up Tamar by calling her feeble-minded. Well, he began to rattle his sabres, accusing Tamar of being, quote, a simpleton of a queen, a killer and taxer of Muslims. Tamar, not daunted by his threats of war, responded, saying that, quote, Your proposal takes into consideration your wealth and the vastness of your armies, but fails to account for divine judgment. While I place my trust not in any army or worthy thing, but in the right hand of the Almighty God and the infinite aid of the cross, which you curse, the will of God, and not your own, shall be fulfilled, and the judgment of God, and not your judgment, shall reign." These were fighting words, but war with Suleiman would be no joke. He was capable of raising well over a 100,000 men in the field. And though Tamar rallied the largest Georgian army in history to her banner, she would still be outnumbered at least two to one. She knew then that she had to move fast to catch her opponent off guard. Tamar, with her army, marched the battlefield, where she gave a rousing speech to her men. She then prayed at a local monastery for victory, before taking position on a nearby hill to watch the battle. This battle, called the Battle of Baziani, fought near the Turkish city of Azerum, the Georgian army won a stunning victory, routing Suleiman's men and capturing a great amount of prisoners and booty. In order to secure the peace following her victory, Tamar formed the Empire of Trebizond as a buffer state between Georgia and the Rum Sultanate ruled by a member of the Byzantine royal house. Calling this an empire stretches the definition to the limits, as it was really just a sliver of land on the Black Sea. But actually, this is one of Tamar's greatest diplomatic moves. See, in 1204, the city of Constantinople, modern Istanbul, had been conquered by troops of the Fourth Crusade. You may wonder why an expedition aimed at recovering Muslim-controlled Jerusalem resulted in the conquest of a Christian-held capital, but sadly, this is not the time for that tale. The important thing is that the Western Christians, led by the Venetians, overthrew the Byzantine emperor in favour of their own man. This led to numerous imperial claimants from the old dynasty to flee the city and set up rump states from which they would plot their revenge against the Roman Catholics who controlled the Holy City. One of these was Alexius Komnenos, a cousin of Tamar's, and it was with her help and troops that he came to rule the Empire of Trebizond. Her excuse for doing so had to do with a dispute over some money meant for some Syrian monasteries. But the real reason was to elevate George's position in the hierarchy of Orthodox Christian nations. With Constantinople, the great capital of the Orthodox Church, now in Catholic hands, Tamar wants to establish Georgia as the new cultural and political hub of the Eastern faith. By backing her claimant, she hoped that he or one of his descendants would eventually find his way back to the throne, and then he would remember who had stood by him at his darkest day. But even if this didn't work out, and spoiler alert, it didn't, Tamar, as the protector of an imperial claimant, was promoting herself as a protector of the faith. 
as the woman who stood for Eastern Christians while the traditional powers were crumbling. Sultan Suleiman may have been her most powerful enemy, but she still had others that were a little closer to home. In 1191, her ex-husband, Yuri Bogolyubsky, made an attempt to overthrow her and install himself as king. He had always been popular amongst a certain subset of the Georgian warrior elite, and he rallied many of them to his cause. Gathering in his harem, his rebellion organised two armies – one to march east in an attempt to engage the royal army, while the other went straight for the heart of the kingdom. This was a serious campaign, and backed by a lot of money and manpower. However, Tamar was well informed of the plan. Wanting Yuri to believe that his feint had worked, she sent her husband with a small force to engage the army that was meant to be a distraction, while leading the bulk of her forces against the other invaders. Not expected to be facing so many well-prepared troops, Yuri's men were routed and surrendered. The rebel commanders placed ropes around their necks and begged for mercy, even offering Yuri up as a prisoner on the condition that his life be spared. Now remember that Tamar had already let Yuri off the hook once, and now that he had attempted to overthrow her, you might expect her to deal with him more harshly. Fool me once, shame on you, and all of that. But no, she was once again lenient, sending him back to Constantinople a free man. The other rebel commanders were sacked from their positions of state, but kept their lands, and most importantly, their heads. There aren't many medieval rulers that would treat rebels so leniently, and it speaks highly to Tamar's character that she chose to be merciful when most others would have expected her to be vengeful. But... Some men just really can't take a hint. Just a year later, Yuri was back again, this time as the governor of an Azerbaijani province on the Georgian border. He launched a series of raids on Georgian territory, but was captured by a local lord. This time, there would be no exile, and it is believed that he was thrown in jail and died in captivity. This is not to say, though, that Tamar always resorted to military force against her enemies, even her Muslim ones. For instance, when Saladin took Jerusalem, Tamar secured Georgian pilgrims' access to the Holy City, as well as a tax exemption for the Georgian Holy Cross Monastery. In return, she promised to, quote, "...be a friend of your friends, the enemy of your enemies." as long as I am alive, to have the best intentions never to attack your towns, states, or fortresses. Now, as we have seen, she took quite a few liberties with that promise, but she never did make war on Saladin. This deal meant that Georgian Christians held special status, being the only members of their faith able to enter the city of Jerusalem with their banners unfold without having to pay. Tamar's military conquests, when adding to those of her immediate forebears, marked the zenith of Georgia's territorial power. The modern nation of Georgia is around 70,000 square kilometres in area. For reference, that makes it about half as big as the state in the US by the same name. 
by the end of Tamar's reign, it was nearly twice that size in terms of the land it actually ruled, but four times it if you account for vassal states and dependencies like the Empire of Trebizond, Alania and Chavan. Indeed, the size of her realm is reflected in the title that she claimed for herself in coins minted during her reign. On them, she is named, By the will of God, King of Kings and Queen of Queens, of the Abkhazanis, Kartavalians, Iranians, Kakhetians and Armenians, Shavanshah and Shahanshah, Autocrat of all the East and the West, Glory of the World and Faith, Champion of the Messiah. But... We wouldn't be here if Tamar was only well known for being a military leader. History is awash with great conquerors. But Tamar has obtained her status in Georgian history for more than just that. She is seen as the architect of Georgia's golden age. And golden ages are rarely forged merely in blood. Of course, the booty won in battle helped a great deal. And one great beneficiary was the church. We've already seen how she took her faith very seriously, praying at the nearest church to any battlefield and negotiating for Georgian access to holy sites in Jerusalem. Well, she also gave generously to the church on any military victory. And the church has since rewarded her attention and generosity. Tamar is considered to be a saint by the Georgian Orthodox Church, meaning that she has the almost unique distinction of being both a great and a saint. She is called the Holy Righteous Queen Tamar, and her feast day is commemorated on May Day. She is also commemorated by the Antiochian and Greek Orthodox churches, and on her feast day, on the 12th of April, they read these prayers. Let the mountaintops and vales of Georgia sound with songs of praise to Lord Tamar as the vessel of wisdom, the smiling sun, the sword of truth, the conversion of infidels, the most harmonious reed pipe of Jesus Christ, and our fervent intercessor before the King of Kings, entreating him to grant great mercy unto us. O thou whom thy people called a king in justice and truth, the father of orphans and the judge of widows, thou son which shone on the Georgian land, thou who spentest all thy strength defending thy kingdom, rise up, O Tamar, and defend us now. Also, and by thine intercessions with Christ, save us from sufferings. In the political sphere, her undisputed position at the top also provided a kind of stability that Georgia had not had for generations. Although many wars were fought, as we have seen, they were generally fought on foreign soil, allowing Georgia itself to flourish, with cities and towns expanding and local arts and craft scenes developing, which led to greater prosperity. More than 53,000 hectares of land were irrigated using modern, for the time, techniques, and a new plough called the Georgian plough was created, making farming more productive and consequently reducing hunger and the chance of famine. But it is in culture that her reign really shone. Georgian craftsmen, notably the goldsmiths Beshken and Becca Opisari, gained fame for their work creating icons and their work adorned all the great churches of the nation. Given that it was the 12th century, it is unsurprising that the art of the period was generally religious in nature, but in this period there was the creation of a uniquely Georgian style, which was a fusion of Byzantine and Persian influences. 
but probably the most famous cultural work that emanated from her reign is The Knight in Panther's Skin, probably the most celebrated work in Georgian literature. It was written by Shota Rustavelli, who is George's answer to Walt Whitman. This was an epic poem, made up of over 1,600 quatrains, and tells the story of two noble knights, Avtandil and Tariel, and their quest to win the hearts of their true loves, the princesses Tinatin and Nestan Darian. These two women are both heavily inspired by Tamar. Tinatin, for example, chooses her own husband and was named queen after her father the king ceded to power, of course, exactly the way that Tamar was. Rustavelli wrote, quote, Rustavan had one child, a daughter, to the world a shining light, like unto the stars she was, or a moon that makes the heavens bright. Whoever looked on her was bereft of his heart and soul and sight. It needs a wise man to praise her with words both masterful and right. The name of this daughter was Tinatin. Let it be known to all. When she'd grown to be a woman, her beauty held the sun in thrall. Unlike in the case of Tamar, however, the nobles of the kingdom were actually quite happy to accept rule by a woman. Quote, O king, please don't speak thus to us. Your rose is not faded today. Bad counsel from you is better than good and other might say. It is right to do whatever will make your heartache go away. It is best to give the kingdom to her who holds the sun in sway. Although a woman, she is a sovereign, ordained by God's decree. We are not flattering you, but even in your absence agree, like her radiance her deeds are bright as the sunshine to see. Lion's whelps are equally lions, though male or female they be. The poem celebrates courtly love and opposes forced marriages, again mirroring Tamar's experience of a bad marriage that was forced upon her and a successful one that was freely entered into. It also has no issue, as we saw in the earlier quote, with female power. In Rustavelli's world, men and women mix as equals, both socially and politically, and the respect shown to women is not of a condescending kind, but one of true equality. Not content with basing two characters off Tamar, he also dedicated the poem to her in the prologue, writing, quote, The lance and shield and sword adorn our ruler, Lion of our lair. Behold the son of our king Tamar, bright of face and dark of hair. I do not know how I will hymn her praises. Do I dare to dare? Pleasing gifts should be offered in joy from all who have seen her there. By shedding tears of blood we praise our king, and I'll say it at the start. I think myself far from the least of those who've played a praising part. A lake of ebony I used, my reed was like a dart. Whoever hears the lines I have written, a spear will pierce his heart. They bade me to write sweet poetry, to sing her kingly praises, extol her eyebrows, lashes and hair in true poetic phrases. Her ruby lips and her ranks of teeth, her crystal army dazes, to think a leaden anvil can break the hardest stone amazes. These bits of the poem I am quoting, by the way, are from the Lynn Coffin translation. This poem has attained a unique status in Georgian culture. Brides are traditionally gifted a copy of it on their wedding days, 
and lines from it are as ubiquitous in Georgian culture as ones from Shakespeare are to ours. His emphasis on virtue rather than noble birth, of a uniquely Georgian culture, and of equality, have ensured that this work has resonated down the centuries. But there is also another, more tragic reason why this work and her reign have shone above all others. Queen Tamar's reign lasted for nearly 40 years, and she outlived her husband David Susland by six. Like her father, she crowned her son Georgi as her co-ruler, probably after becoming ill with the disease that killed her. Chroniclers suggest that her years following the army and sharing hardships with her soldiers finally caught up with her. When she died in January 1213, she was buried in the Geliati Monastery, the traditional burial ground for Georgian kings. So there are rumours that persist to this day that her body was actually secretly buried elsewhere to protect it from thieves and foreign conquerors. The Georgian Golden Age did not die with her, but it didn't long persist. Her son Georgi did not have the force of will that his mother did, and so struggled to rise above the petty bickering of his nobles. But the real death knell came with the Mongols, who crashed into Georgia in the 1220s. In 1239, Georgia, now under the rule of Tamar's daughter Rusidan, lost most of its territory gained under Tamar, and was forced to accept its status as a Mongol vassal state. Most of the culture, literature and art of the Golden Age was lost, and we are highly fortunate that even the knight in Pantherskins managed to survive. From there, Georgia fell into centuries of decline. Mongol rule was thrown off, only to lead to anarchy and partition. The various bits of the old Georgian kingdom were subject to repeated invasions and interference from the Persians, Ottomans and Russians, before finally being incorporated into the Russian Empire in 1801. A brief period of independence after the First World War was crushed by the Soviet Red Army, meaning that Georgia would not emerge as an independent state again until 1991. These lost years of Georgia have only meant that the glory years of its golden age have shone more brightly, and none more brilliantly than Tamar. Her legend was kept alive for centuries, both in Ristavelli's Night in Pantherskin and in oral tradition, but did not get a great deal of airing until the 19th century, when Georgian nationalists chose her as their great heroine, the symbol of their long oppressed country that was currently in the grips of the Russian Empire. Russians too began to enjoy stories about her, but their Tamar was quite different from the one venerated in Georgia. This was a time where the Orient was viewed with a kind of mysticism, an exotic region of liberal sexuality and corruption inferior to Western nations. Probably the most notable version of this vision of Tamar came from the pen of the great Russian poet Mikhail Lermontov. His poem Tamara, written in 1841, depicts a very different Tamar from the one I've been speaking to you about. Where history talks of an austere and highly religious queen, Lermontov describes a far darker and more sensual woman. This poem has everything that a fan of romantic poetry would want. Evocative scenery, sensual eroticism, a femme fatale, and even a juicy murder thrown in at the end. It's a little long, so I won't read it all, but I'll give you uh, my favourite bits. It starts... Within the deep Darial Canyon that harbours the Terek's thick mist, 
A time-worn old tower was standing, a dark shape among the dark cliffs. Within that confining, tall tower resided Tamara the Queen, angelic in beauty and glamour, demonic in slyness and schemes. Ooh, isn't that good? It then goes on to describe how she lured men to destruction. How clear rang the voice of Tamara. How amorous did it invite. The heart of the stranger enticing, seducing with magic delight. The warrior was snared by her singing. Nor noble nor herd could withstand. Then, noiseless, her portal was opened by eunuchs of shadowy hand. So, she's got her victim in her chamber, where... She lay on a soft bed of feathers, with gold cloth and pearls bedecked, to wait for her guest, and beside her, two goblets of wine effervesced. Because, even if you're ensnaring your victim to his death, it's only polite to offer them a glass of red. It continues, So revelled mid desolate ruins, of lovers past counting at least, in their bridal night's wild distraction, and in truth, at their own, Death Feast. This sensual tamar was quite popular with the 19th century romantics and survived into the 20th century outside of Russia. For example, the Nobel Prize winning playwright Knut Hansen wrote a play, Queen Tamara, in 1903, in which Tamar captures a Muslim ruler in battle. Naturally, of course, they fall in love, he is killed, and she promises to treat her Muslim subjects better. As you may guess from that rather hack plot, the play bombed and is not regularly mentioned as one of his rather better pantheon of work. Finally, for outside images of Tamar, the Russian composer Mili Balakirev wrote a symphonic poem about her, inspired by Lermontov's written poem, which takes his words and adds some rather mystical and flowing melodies. If you'd like to hear it, I've put a link in the show notes. But here is just a little bit performed by the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. outsiders' views, what about in Georgia? Well, their romanticists took a different tack from Russian and Western authors, emphasising instead a more historically accurate version of their queen, albeit probably overemphasising her saintliness. In the 1840s, a fresco of her alongside her father and son was uncovered and was restored at the then-ruined Batalia Monastery. This image of her was very popular, and found its way across the country and inspired writers and painters to examine her anew. Suffering under the Russian imperialist yoke, George and Sotomar as a great hero that was theirs and not Russia's, and held her up as their potential saviour. Of course, the fact that she was married to a Russian and then divorced him when he turned out to be a loser was highly resonant to Georgians, who too wished for a break with their larger northern neighbour, 
and resulted in two notable works of literature that I will pick out for you. The first was a work by Shalva Dadiani called The Unfortunate Russian, which focused on Tamar's first husband, Yuri Bogliubsky. This book, which focused on Yuri and his multiple failed attempts to overthrow Tamar, was considered so dangerous by the Soviet authorities when it was published that they retitled it George the Russian and then fully censored it, calling it a threat to, quote, the centuries-long friendship of the Russian and Georgian peoples. More recently, in 2002, a satirical short story by Lasha Bugadze called The First Russian about Tamar and Yuri's rather, shall we say, frustrating wedding night where he fails to consummate the marriage and instead engages in a tryst with a chicken. Now, one might have expected this to be rather popular in a nation still coming to terms with centuries of Russian domination, but the very inference that their beloved queen might have engaged in, I don't know, something as coarse and everyday as sex, was hugely criticised by conservative Georgians. It was even attacked in Parliament, and the Georgian Patriarch got involved. So you can see how seriously Georgians take even the slightest denigration of their beloved queen. Today, her name is everywhere. The Night in Panther's Clothing is held up as their greatest work of literature. Her face has adorned the 50 lira banknote. She has an airport named after her. And her statues adorn many towns and cities across the country. She is remembered as a national hero, the perfect queen, the protector of the nation. Her days may be gone and her glories fleeting, but they are no less notable nor memorable for it. In the words of Ristavelli in The Night and Panther's Skin, the poem dedicated to and somewhat about Queen Tamar, quote, Their tale is ended like a dream of the night. They are passed away, gone beyond the world. Behold the treachery of time. To him who thinks it long, even for him, it is of a moment. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.